Hi, you're listening to Ingredipedia, a factual food fight podcast where each week or every three years or so, we pick an ingredient and we fight about it. I'm Ben Birchall and I'm joined by my co-host, Emily Naismith. Hi, Em. Hello, everyone. It's been a while. It's been quite a while. It's, it's, can't, it's been three years. Yeah. I mean, not much has happened then, like no. in that time. No, it's been pretty chill. Yeah, just a little pandemic. Few kids here and there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true. We both have made humans since we last recorded an Ingredipedia, which I think, um, you know, what do they say? Like kids kill bands. I think they they kill podcasts too. Um, so uh, it's an absolute treat to uh, to be doing this again. So what 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 has been happening for you over the last three years? What have you been eating? Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, during lockdown, that was, I cycled through a lot of addictions. My main one was um, Cocoa Pops. That was like a ah. huge one for me. Um, I can't look at Camembert at the moment because I went too hard on that as well. And <laughs> um, then I guess my mainstay has been Curly Whirlies. But yeah, what about yeah. you? So maybe for international listeners, assuming that we still still have them, a curly whirly is like a kind of caramel fudgy kind of chocolate bar. Yeah, yeah, it's like um, very cheap chocolate with um, like yeah, chewy caramel, and it's like arranged in like a squiggly, squiggly um, shape. It's very good. Okay, so you yeah you cycled through sweet and savory and yeah and back to sweet again. Yeah, I I don't think I I didn't have any kind of like single food obsessions, but I definitely found that my happy place was like cooking beef rendang from scratch. Like if I could, you know, if I'm grinding turmeric, it's a happy day for me. Yeah, nice. That's what got you through. Yeah, just. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about oysters for our first episode back, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, we'll just start with the, you know, the deluxe kind of like, let's not go. go. No, we're going to start at the top. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's all downhill from here. <laughs> it's very true. Um, so let's get into it. Have you ever dabbled in vegetarianism or veganism, Ben? Uh, I, I, I've tried to scale down on my meat eating, but I've never really gone all the way into it. And no, I've never tried veganism. Mm. No. Well, I mean, I was vegetarian for a while, like quite a while ago, but with a big asterisk, as in I didn't like cook or buy meat for myself, but if someone else made it for me or gave it to me, then I would definitely eat it. So I was a bit you, of an ethically lax vegetarian. Do, does that count like if, if, if a waiter brought it to you or? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I didn't, or if I didn't order it, actually, okay. even if I did order it, like Macca's throughout like that, <laughs> yeah, I, was gonna say. I never didn't get a quarter pounder. <laughs> fair, fair. Okay. Um, but I've never been a vegan. So obviously veganism is when you don't eat animals or animal products, but um, I have heard that some people think that oysters can be categorized as okay for vegans to eat and not just if you're given them for free. So basically it's all around the idea of whether oysters are sentient beings. Mm -hmm. So basically they have no brain or advanced central nervous system. 
So they're unable to think or feel pain. I mean, scientists say, so we think. No one really knows, I guess, but um, that's what the science science says. So depending on how you define your veganism, I mean, oysters could fall into the mix of things you can eat. So for example, instead of defining it around animals and animal products, you could kind of say you won't eat anything that feels pain or that harms the environment. So in that case, you could argue that oysters are okay to eat because as we said, they don't feel pain and farming oysters actually has a beneficial impact on the environment because they kind of like filter and purify the water, which is encourages like secondary ecosystems and all that kind of stuff. So there's a really great article on the UK Guardian called Are Oysters Vegan by Bob Granlease, which goes into all the details. So if you're vegan and you're listening, perhaps, you know, think about the boundaries around your veganism. And if you're on board the it's okay to eat non-sentient beings trained, then get yourself a little dozen of oysters and slam them back guilt-free. Okay, well, maybe you could do a version of this dish I'm going to talk about for my first fact. Um, I think you'll be really happy to know that I did Google Civil War oysters. I, I um, had a feeling you'd do that. Yeah, and look, <laughs> there, there, was, there was a lot that came up, but I thought, you know, hey, it's... Um, it, we might do another episode in, in less than three years' time. I want to I want to keep my powder dry for the Civil War. I did actually learn, though, from American Heritage magazine that an ambitious former congressman named Abraham Lincoln uh, was admired locally for his oyster orgies and that the uh, Lincolns several times threw parties at which huge quantities of mollusks were eaten raw and subjected to every method of cookery then practiced in Springfield, Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln was from. So I've got an Abraham Lincoln fact, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but what I did learn about the, the history of oysters is that they've variously been seen as like gutter food for poor people. And at other times, the most exclusive, decadent, expensive food on earth, more, more um, as, as they are now. Um, which brings us to a dish called Hangtown Fry which was a California gold rush specialty. Uh, so according to American Heritage magazine, um, apparently uh, the, uh, the story goes that a miner from Shirt Tail Bend whooped into the big city, which was Hangtown, uh, loaded with, with gold nuggets and dust. So he's, he's had a big score at the gold mines. Uh, at the, the Gary House, or the Carey House, I've also seen it um, described as, but one of those two, which was a, a sort of a an inn with a, with a restaurant attached. Um, he demanded the most expensive meal in the house. The most expensive ingredients, he was told, were oysters and eggs. Uh, oysters because they had to come from a long way away and uh, eggs because they spoiled quickly in the, in the heat. So uh, one version has the cook inventing the dish and another has the miner inventing the dish and, and the cook ordering it. But in any case, he poured beaten eggs over frying oysters and Hangtown Fry was born. So that's one, uh, that's one theory. The other um, creation myth is told by the waiters at Sam's Grill in Tiburon, uh, just north of San Francisco, where they've been serving this dish for 160 years. Um, and they say at the county jail in Placerville, a condemned man was asked what he would like to eat for his last meal. He thought quickly and ordered an oyster omelette, knowing that the oysters would have to be brought from the water over 100 miles away by steamship and over rough roads, delaying his execution for a day. So two creation myths there, one dish, 
and I kind of like the sound of it. Do you so, reckon? Um, I don't know. Well, let's see, because um, I made some. Oh, okay. So let's go to let's go to the tape. Um, this is uh, this is me last night uh, in my uh, in my kitchen. Uh, I might be talking a little quietly because uh, my kids were asleep, um, and I was doing a, a a a cooking show in my uh, in my kitchen. So here we go. Okay, Hangtown Fry. This is a Martha Stewart recipe that I'm kind of using. I'm breaking three eggs into a bowl and whisking them up. While I do that, I've got a rasher of bacon cut into lardons. That I'm gonna gently fry in a little bit of something that Martha didn't have in her recipe, which is a little bit of uh, a butter, because, hey, you know, it's my last meal, potentially, depending who you believe. Whisking the eggs with some parsley and salt and pepper. That's my bacon frying. Uh, be honest, I added a little bit of uh, prosciutto as well because uh, it's in the fridge, and you know maybe this is my last meal, so I think I deserve it. Now, key ingredient: I'm going to use four fresh oysters, and I'm putting them in a Plain flour, salt and pepper, just quick dredge. So I'm just covering them with the, and I'm adding them to the pan with my butter and my bacon. Letting them take on a little bit of color. And actually one thing that Martha did say to add was a little bit of cream to my egg mix. Again, it's my last meal or I'm really rich from gold. So either way. Okay, everything's taken on a nice little bit of color. I'm gonna add my egg mix to the pan. Now this is kind of you know, somewhere between a frittata and a and an omelette. Uh, it's designed to be kind of flipped over and served with the bacon and uh, oyster side up. So I've turned the pan down a little so that the eggs don't take on too much of that colour too quickly. It's going to have to cook right through. Give it a couple of minutes, give it a light flip. And uh, I've got some Hangtown Fry here. A couple of eggs, bacon, prosciutto, parsley, cream, and some fresh oysters dredged in flour. Let's give it a crack. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like 
oysters Kilpatrick, but for breakfast. Yeah, if you're going to go, it's worse ways to go. So you took the oysters out of the shell and had them mm-hmm. in the middle of the frittata. Pretty much, yeah. It's sort of, you mix it in with the bacon, it kind of, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it sits at the bottom of the pan, so when you flip it over, you got, you know, eggs and bacon uh, uh, with, with with these little kind of crummy, browned off oysters that took on all the, the bacon and butter flavour. I was pretty rich, I, but... Yeah, uh, I yeah. definitely, I definitely eat it, but I do feel like it's a waste of oysters. Yeah. I got to say though, the oysters that I had were, um, and, and you and I actually bought our oysters from the same place on the weekend and this was Tuesday night. And so they'd been shucked for like several days. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I was pretty happy to be cooking them to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> true. True. Well, I guess that, um, that's fr- frugal in that sense then. Yeah. I, I survived the <laughs> night. Um, it, it wasn't my last meal and, um, yeah, Hangtown Fry, I'm, I'm all about it. I think next, next real bad hangover I get. I'm going to I'm going to go the hangtown fry. So obviously oysters are great to eat. Mm-hmm. End of fact. Um <laughs> but the other thing that oysters are known for is for holding pearls inside them. Now I've eaten my fair share of oysters over the years and I've never seen a pearl inside any of them. So I want to find out why and um where the pearls actually come from. So, did a bit of research. Pearls are made by marine oysters and freshwater mussels, and they're made as like a natural defense mechanism against an irritant, such as a little bit of sand or even a parasite entering the shell. So, then once that little parasite is inside the shell, the oyster slowly secretes layers of calcium carbonate, which is the kind of thing the shell's made with. And that creates that cool mother of pearl kind of material known as nacre, which encases the parasite and protects the actual oyster from the parasite, creating a pearl over the span of like six months to four years. So I just think that's so cool. Like something so gross, like a parasite can be turned into something so beautiful, like a pearl. And then I was thinking, I'm wearing like four pearls on my ears as we speak. So does that mean I have four pearl-encased parasites on my ears? So Uh it doesn't because when um, pearls are cultured commercially, instead of inserting a parasite into the shell, they can manually insert a little bit of shell or a small bead themselves, which acts as that irritant to promote the production Mm. of nacre. But Sometimes like the little irritant that enters in there is a fish, like a tiny fish. And so that ends up creating a fish shaped pearl. No How cool way. is that? So it just like coats. It yeah. coats it. Like so whatever it coats, it kind of takes on a little bit of that shape. Yeah, I think so. So so I guess the commercial ones, you know, they'd be looking for a consistent sort of spherical shape. Yeah. So that, that's why they use a bead or a yeah. you put anything in there. I know. Um the world is your oyster. So um, <laughs> that, like, that's cool. But still, why haven't I found a pearl in my oyster? So mm. firstly, pearl oysters are a separate family-wise from edible oysters. And the oysters that produce pearls that kind of we're familiar with have shells lined with more nacre. And these are the ones that are used in the jewellery industry. 
Um, but technically it is possible for any oyster, even like the Pacific oysters that I guess we're most familiar with, to produce a pearl. But um, naturally formed pearls are uncommon. Apparently there's like a 1 in 10,000 chance and it most likely won't be of much value. Still, I think it would be extremely cool to find one, even if it involved like choking a near-death experience. Um, I think it'd be fun. So I guess I'll just have to keep eating oysters um, to try and find one. Let's keep going. Okay, I'm going to get a little sciency on you. Um, okay. H- how is your, like, your sort of biological clock? Like, do you wake up at the same time every day? Um, um, yeah. With, without an alarm? Like, you're pretty, you've got some good sort of circadian rhythms happening? I wouldn't say good, like, is 4 a.m., that's, I mean, that's consistent, but it's not great. Yeah. yeah. Well, as long as it's consistent. Um, cause yeah, our, our circadian or bi- like biological rhythms have been subject to, to really sort of hot scientific debate for the last like 80 years at least. Um, but at the center of some of the most interesting research is the humble oyster. So this is from an article in Wired, which is in itself an excerpt from a book called The Human Cosmos, Civilization and the Stars by Joe Marchant. Uh, And it centers around a piece of research in February 1954, a U.S. biologist named Frank Brown discovered something so remarkable, so inexplicable that his peers essentially wrote it out of history. Like he was not a popular man. Um, He basically, he he dredged a batch of Atlantic oysters from the seabed off New Haven, Connecticut, shipped them hundreds of miles inland put them in pans of brine inside a sealed dark room, shielded from any changes in temperature, pressure, water currents, light, basically black box, nothing getting in for these oysters. Um, and he knows that normally these oysters feed with the tide. So they open their shells to filter plankton and al- algae from the seawater um, and rest in between and, and close their shells. So um, he'd already noticed that, that uh, oysters were most active at high tide, which arrives roughly twice a day. So there's two periods a day where they open up, they eat some algae and plankton, and then they close up again. And he was interested in how the mollusks time this behavior. So he devised the experiment to test what, what they would do when they're away from the sea, away from any information about the tides, um, would this normal feeding rhythm persist? Um, the answer is uh, yes. For, for two weeks, despite being in the dark, the oysters opened up for a feed at the same time every day, twice a day. And then after a little while they started to drift off so it got later and later and they sort of lost their lost their rhythm but then something weird happened so after two more weeks a stable cycle reappeared but it now lagged three hours behind the new haven tides uh, which is where they were from they're in you know in illinois in the midwest at this point brown was mystified until he checked an astronomical almanac High tides occur each day when the moon is highest in the sky or lowest below the horizon, and Brown realised that the oysters had corrected their activity according to the local state of the moon. So they'd somehow synced up with what the moon was doing where they were, despite being in a black box That's with no so information. intense. How the yeah, hell did very... they know that? Well, it was subject to hot debate. Brown was, like, basically shunned because people, like, you know... What he was saying, sort of saying, well, they're, they're sinking to the moon. They're like, yeah, how, buddy? And he was like really um, discredited. Um, every other major figure in the field was like basically saying it's internal clocks. It's got nothing to do with external um, uh, external factors. And Brown was like this lone voice. And people were like, he was so discredited that people in his field 
published satirical papers about him, like about unicorns and things like that. Like they're saying he was like chasing this crazy dream. Um, but so Imagine he knew if that that's he had what to... was in our newspapers at the moment. That would just be like <laughs> such a delight to have a, a war over what someone thinks about oysters and the tide. How refreshing. A, a, a war over <laughs> moons. Um, but yeah, so he knew that he, he really needed a good, strong reason to be able to say, yes, these oysters are... Um, a sinking with the with the kind of the, the cycle of the moon, um, and the answer that he hit upon was magnets, uh, or more specifically the Earth's magnetic field. So the oysters, uh, his theory was, uh, and spoiler alert, he was right, uh, were sensing and responding to seasonal and daily changes in the Earth's magnetic field, which are caused by the sun and the moon. So there's the you know the constant magnetic field in the Earth, but it also responds to the sun and the moon, um, and and seasonal changes as well. So, yeah, um, Brown figured that out. It took another 20 years for another scientist, a German graduate student named Wolfgang Wilchko, to, to, um, to extend out this, um, th- his research to figure out that animals from pigeons and sparrows to lobsters and newts are sensitive to the magnetic field lines generated as the Earth spins in space. So wood mice and mole rats use them when, sitting, uh, when sighting their nests. Cattle and deer orient their bodies along them while grazing. And dogs, and maybe um, we need to try this one out, for unknown reasons, dogs prefer to point themselves north or south when they wee or poo. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So all what animals are kind of responding to these magnetic fields um, and that, that yeah, Brown um, kind of discovered in the 1950s. So, um, yeah, since then there's been a raft of research that backs up Brown's contention that the Earth's magnetic field as influenced by the sun and moon, uh, that enables biological clocks to run regardless of temperature, not necessarily driving behaviour directly, but providing the fundamental tick of the clock. And oysters helped us find it all out. That's that's truly wild. And now I'm like rethinking my first fact, like maybe they're sentient. Like that is, that's really smart. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it is, it is smart. It's a little scary, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that when I eat more of these, um, this tin of smoked oysters I have in front of me. For no reason. I don't even have a fact about them. As um, I'm well aware, after many years of doing Ingredipedia, there's nothing like researching something, learning heaps about it, then reflecting on how you eat it to fuel your anxiety slash self-consciousness. <laughs> Flashback, Apple episode. But, Apple episode, yeah. <laughs> but alas, um, that's what happened when I researched oysters as well. So mm. I started to think too much about eating oysters and how I don't know how I do it. And I don't know whether that's how you're supposed to eat oysters. Mm. Um, and I have all these like hang-ups about how you're supposed to eat food um, after like you know, not re- growing up, not really eating in any fine dining places, really, and then working at Broadsheet and then suddenly just discovering that there's like ways that you're supposed to like butter your bread or ways that you're supposed to get the fish that's in a whole fish on the table onto your plate. Like, ah. um, I don't know any of these things. Yeah, I don't know them either. <laughs> so maybe there's like a way I'm supposed to eat oysters. So I mm. had to um, research it even more. So apparently you're supposed to use the small fork. So I don't think I've ever seen this famous small fork that's apparently provided to you with the oysters. Have you seen a small fork? 
Um, my my mum's got some small forks in in her drawer. Well, um, I mean, maybe that's where you get it from, or your like, other yeah. appliance, appliances <laughs> and utensils oh, for every single occasion. One hundred percent, it comes from Gail, definitely. So, how big are we talking fork fork wise? Um, it's like the size of a teaspoon. So, they're, okay, they're that's not that just... small. I imagined like the size of a matchstick or something. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, it's like probably the, the length, length of a of a teaspoon, and it's got like three tines instead of four. It's like, yeah, I guess it's like a cocktail fork. I guess that would have been for, for eating hors d'oeuvres in the, in the 70s. Right. Well, would be my guess. Scooping out your volivant or yeah, eating, okay. your, eating your prunes wrapped in bacon. All right. All right. This is my fact now. So I use <laughs> okay, a okay. regular size fork to um, loosen the oyster away from the shell. Squeeze some lemon on top um, because there's nothing better than that, in my opinion. Like you don't need to do anything too fancy to oysters. Then bring the wide curved part of the shell to my mouth and like slip the oyster in. Then this is the bit where I don't know what I do. So I remember some people saying, um, I think when I first started eating oysters, oh, you, you're not supposed to chew it. And then I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'd chew it because otherwise I'd choke. But I don't know like how much I chew it if it's just like one, two chews and then swallow or whether it's just like how much I'd normally chew. And so I'm just getting very confused. So I'm just like, I'm just going to buy some oysters and try and work it out. So let's go. Okay. All right. And so you can tell me if this is what you think is the right way. Okay. All right. Large fork. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is hard to actually get off. Okay. All right, it's free. Mm. Rocking back. Definitely chewing. I can see chewing. Mm. Okay, it's, okay, I'm not. Okay, I swallowed it. So it was, that was probably <laughs> only about five or six chews. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, not, not many. Was that normal? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I've only got, I've only got um, John West smoked oysters in oil in front of me, so I can't. You definitely got to chew those bad boys, otherwise. <laughs> you really have they'll, to chew they'll be, them. Yeah, that was so like a rock. <laughs> um, that, and also there's that, um, the like saltiness of the water. Oh man, uh, the brine is the best bit. It's the best. I, you want to feel like you're drowning in the surf yep. when you eat an oyster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I didn't really have a way to end this. I just kind of just wanted to eat oysters. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Fair. I, I, th- I think I'm on the right track. Um, if anyone has any feedback, let me know. It looked good. You look, you looked <laughs> like you knew what you were doing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't kick you out of one of those broadsheet oyster parties that oh, you've been going to. No, it, that was in another <laughs> life. But speaking of oyster parties, um, one day, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> one day I went to this gallery exhibition opening or something and there was a person there whose job was just to shuck oysters and walk around and offer them to you. And he had like, I think he had like, it was all like attached to a belt on him or something. And he had like the shucker, he had like a bucket of oysters attached to him. And I was just like follow him, following him around. It was, it was the best. I want to have that job. Yeah. Because there's nothing that, I'd probably cut this out, but I just, I love shucking oysters. Like there's nothing more rewarding because, you know, you've got to work at it. It takes some technique. And then when you get the, like the, the reward is just so worth it because you just get the freshest oysters 
I don't think um, I've ever, I don't, well, I have never done that. Um, oh, man. I've but I'd like to, to but I um, struggle to open a jar of peanut butter. I don't know how I'd go with the, <laughs> the oyster. <laughs> Similar. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. fine. Okay. So we've been talking about how we like to have oysters, like you squeeze a lemon. I'm I'm a big fan of a squeeze of lemon. I also love like a little bit of hot sauce. Um, mm-hmm. like, taba- like Tabasco is great for it or... Um, uh, tapatio hot sauce, a little little drizzle of that. Um, I went around uh, Tasmania a, f- a couple of years ago, and just wherever I could find oysters on that uh, on that east coast, I would just buy buckets of them and just shuck them and a bit of hot sauce, and you bang, I would just I ate so many. So I love eating them like that. But there is one oyster dish, and it wasn't my mum's 1970s smoked oyster boulevard. Um, although that's pretty memorable as well. Um, there's one oyster de- dish that's absolutely stayed with me. Like, have you ever had a dish that just, like, stays with you that you remember it, like, years after? Yeah, definitely. Because I've got, I've got this one, and uh, it would have been 2016. So what's that? Like, six years ago now, I had this, I had this dish. I went to um, Bray in Birigara in, in regional Victoria, uh, which is a, a great restaurant run by a guy called Dan Hunter. Um, he he, uh, yeah, just a, a great chef, one of one of Australia's most revered chefs. And I don't remember anything else that I ate that day, even though I remember really enjoying it and having a great time, and just like coming away thinking it was a it was a fantastic meal. But it. Everything else is kind of blurry. I do actually, I remember a few little things, but like everything else is kind of blurry, but I just remember this one dish. So it came out like towards the end of the meal, kind of dessert time. And, um, you know, it was a, a degustation and it had sort of the list of what was going to be coming out. And this is one dish called iced oyster. And I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be an oyster. Maybe got some like granita on it, like a champagne granita or, you know, like that kind of thing. I've had that before. So the dish comes out. It, it looks like the ocean. It's like a, like a rock and there's like some beautiful kind of like sea washed stones. And then there's like this perfect oyster sitting on top of the rocks. And it's looks a little different because, you, you know, you can't see the, the texture of the oyster in there. It was all kind of like perfectly smooth and dusted with this green kind of uh, dust. And I'm like, okay, I'll give this a try and have a spoon with it, not a tiny fork, but a spoon. And I go to sort of take what I think is going to be the oyster out, and it just scoops beautifully. And then I realized, like, iced oyster is like, this is oyster ice cream. Oh, wow. And it was like this perfect oyster ice cream. And this is the way that um, it's described in uh, Delicious Magazine. Dan's oyster ice cream is made from fresh milk, sugar, and oyster brine, a.k.a. the liquor which is poured straight from the shells after shucking. We we're just talking about how fantastic that that liquor is. Well, yeah, this is um, yeah, the ice cream is churned twice until soft, light and workable, and perfect scoop is then slotted into an empty oyster shell and finished with oyster powder made from finely ground dehydrated oyster meat. Wow. So it's basically like all of the bits of the oyster with with, you know, sugar and fresh milk and like weird things that shouldn't work together. Um but it just like, man, it just popped. It was just like all the flavors of the oyster that you love, sweetened and cold and briny and 
wheat and oceany and just like smooth and delicious and I've never forgotten it. And uh, I did I did a bit of digging around and I found the the ingredients are yeah caster sugar oysters dextrose. Um, have you got any um, trimaline in your pantry? I yeah, just know. just a kilo. Okay, cool. Can I borrow some? <laughs> um, sorbet stabilizer. I'm guessing that's something that you get for ice cream makers. Sea lettuce. So there's a, there is something other than oyster in there, and I think that's maybe what adds the green to the the, the um, oyster powder at the end. Milk powder, freeze dried sherry vinegar, and cultured milk. And that's all it is. So it's basically oyster, milk, sugar, and stuff. And it just made the most memorable dish I've ever had. And thank you, Dan Hunter, for that iced oyster. It sounds amazing. I really want to go there. Um, I've seen pictures of that, but I just, yeah, I just didn't think anything that looks like an oyster would be better than an actual oyster, but that actually sounds so creative and so interesting. Yeah, it really works. Okay, so what did we talk about? Well, I talked about whether vegans can eat oysters and whether they're sentient beings or not. Uh, and then I talked about the Hangtown Fry, an uh, oyster omelette type thing. And for round two, I talked about how oysters make pearls. And I talked about the science of circadian rhythms and how oysters and magnets can teach us uh, a lot about them. And for my third fact, I just basically made up an excuse to eat oysters and also fuel my anxiety. <laughs> uh, and I talked about the iced oyster at uh, the Bray restaurant in regional Victoria. So technically on Ingredipedia, the thing that kind of makes this podcast a bit interesting is that people can vote on whose facts they um, found the most, or whose kind of series of facts found, they found the most interesting. Um, so are we still going to do that? Yeah, I, you know, let's, let's, let's go OG, I reckon. All right. Well, I think the, the Instagram algorithm has kind of died, died a slow death, <laughs> so we may only get one. I'll, like, yeah. I'll, I'll be happy if I get a like. To be honest. Okay. Let's just go for two or three and we'll, yeah. we'll see what we'll see what happens from there. If anybody gets under five likes, we won't do it again next episode. <laughs> How about that? All right, cool. There may not be a next episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Um, and I mean, speaking of algorithms, like that that podcast algorithm, we've gotta be like just not even rating on their radar. So if anybody like could find the effort within their soul to give us a five-star rating, that would be Please. much appreciated. Um, and also thanks to all the people who are still going to the website, even though it was down for a while. Um, <laughs> they are still still getting in touch. Um, thank you for, for going to ingredipedia.com.au and thanks so much for all of the... Um, the messages over the three years, um, we, we really did plan on, on doing this a lot sooner. Um, so yeah, hit us up with ingredient suggestions. We'll, 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 um, we'll try and do this on a semi-regular basis and, uh, we promise we won't, we won't leave it three years again. All right. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cool. See ya.